Welcome to the Unified Endurance Podcast, episode 173, and welcome back to the show, Rob Foster. Hello, Thomas. It's been a while. Has it? I don't know. I think it has. Before Christmas, you were on, back when we were running only. Ah, uh, yeah. Then we've we branched, changed, didn't we? branched out now to endurance, so you're coming on to talk about one of your favourite topics. <laughs> accents. The, the many accents of Rob Foster. The many accents of cycling tours. Mate, just tell us, how have you been? What have you been up to? Not an awful lot. Went to South Africa, rode a bike. It was decent. Um, run a little bit as well. Came back, got super ill. Fantastic. <laughs> and then, <laughs> what else did I do? Been running, riding, and getting ready for Into Darkness. So, just steady away. Had parents over. Lack of sleep there. Fantastic. <laughs> Sounds busy, mate. It's Sounds very busy. It's hectic. It's, uh, it's coincided well with the classic season. The last few months, Correct. have you made any time to be watching? I have. I've watched all of Paris Roubaix. Had a great time. All of it from start to finish. Yeah, <laughs> Ash had a great day of doing nothing. And uh, and that's what we're going to talk about today is cycling, but particularly the Grand Tours. Do well. There's a long history to Grand Tours, which we could bore a lot of people with. When we're we're looking at the Grand Tours, we're talking about Giro, Tour de France, and the Vuelta. See si. now. You're going to tell me more about your predictions for the season and maybe help people to get a bit more excited about it so that they follow along with it. Let's talk back to the classics first, though. When you're watching the classics, are you watching it as an interest into what's going to happen in the Grand Tours? Are you watching them because you just love bike racing? Because I love bike racing? There's no... I mean, you can take a lot from what like Pog's been doing in the classics he's been absolutely ripping it up and he's not actually gone to altitude yet so that's quite interesting he's going to go potter off for a little bit before the tour have you seen his schedule i have not seen his schedule. <laughs> I, I asked for it i i um i dropped a dm to jumbo visma but it didn't get back to me he doesn't ride for jumbo though no he doesn't is <laughs> uae let's talk about vindegaard don't i i'll find another expert to bring on the show to talk about cycling <laughs> so because what what it way it used to be mate was the the classics were the sort of beginning of the year and you either were a classics rider or you were a grand tour rider. Correct. But now we, we're almost starting to get predictions for what's going to happen in the grand tours based off the classic season. Would you agree with that? No. Oh, tell me. I think that the classics is too far removed from what a grand tour is. Grand tour is three weeks. It's full gas. It's lots of hills, which you get in some of the classics, but it's it's more... Uh, I wouldn't say it's a grand predictor um, because the big lads still can play on it. You can see who's in form, who's building, but not so much a predictor for what's going to happen later on, especially in the Vuelta. How can you see that? Yeah. Um, Tour de France, maybe. Vindegaard has been doing like little tours, like week-longs, but no real classics. And then Pogacar just races because he loves to race. Yeah. So mm -hmm. that was the kind of point I was circling around is, do we, we're watching Pogacar win quite a lot within the classics season which are let's be clear on that they're the one day races normally point to point that has some insane terrain in as well doesn't it yeah they're monuments aren't they so they're, they're old school races that have been on forever and they're super long like 250ks and it's all about endurance and it's all about the big punch in the last bit but it's been a bit different this year hasn't it so everybody's been kicking off from the start from pretty much kilometers here it's taken in Paris Bay took 100k for the break to go and they're going at 52k an hour for the first two hours it's absolute bedlam <laughs> that's a sign of what's to come in the grand tours 
that's going to be even better. Okay. So what do you... So I think the the course of cycling has changed a lot within probably the last four years. I think Pogacar has been a real game changer. As he's absolutely turned the cycling world on its head. The Galacticos, huh? <laughs> You've got Pog, yeah, who just attacks at every available opportunity. Yeah. MVP who does exactly the same, and they got Wout van Aert, who's the best all-round cyclist, in my opinion, of the whole um, peloton. And this is what's exciting now about cycling. And the Grand Tours, you normally, the first week, only the real hard cause would watch. Second week, whoever was in the lead might get their country behind them. And in the third week, was in when everyone would tune in. But now what I'm seeing is people are actually tuning into the classics to start seeing what's going to happen in the Grand Tours. You don't think they're related, but some people might. And I think it's really good for cycling. Um, and it's thanks to obviously to GCN for, for covering near enough every race out there. Tertiary. <laughs> Tis cycling for you. Tis cycling for me. We've a good, decent VPN, right? Do you, do you think we're, we're coming into a, if you want to say it, you've already talked about the three big guys, but are they bringing on a golden era of cycling? At the minute, yeah, because it's so exciting, 100%. And these three-week tours, you saw it last year, it was the fastest tour ever, I think. Uh, and there was more attacks than ever. Like you got three or two guys last year who were just going toe to toe, who were just smashing it yeah. and, and and riding like they were riding a classic every single day. Yeah. And then that makes the classics even more mental. So if you look, if you go to a um, a competitor podcast, the the G, <laughs> the what competitors, mate? Uh, way we're, behind. We're way over. <laughs> cover more distances but if you go and listen to them and their reflections on what's going on in the peloton especially for the like rose assessment of the the classics it's just bedlam mm. everybody's fighting they're racing like amateurs that's what mvp said as well it's mm. it's such good watching yeah and you're watching it from not just a fan of cycling but also a, a coaching perspective and data is more available to us more than ever before have you seen any standout pieces of data that you've seen and just can't get your head around every, every time every time they release it well, <laughs> give us uh one of your favorites oh no i've the milan sanremo the the they three of them broke the record up the podio and i think they knocked out like 600 watts up there i don't know my numbers off my top of my head because i haven't like looked for at least four weeks but the speed they went up there was ridiculous. I think 40 clicks an hour <laughs> up the Poggio at the end of a 250k race. It's absolutely ballistic how fast those guys are going. That's three of them. Three of them broke it. Yeah. That's definitely a corrections corner somewhere, but <laughs> it was insane. It's amazing. And you're, you're obviously really interested in that side of, of the data. What, what is bringing around... We talked about um, them going harder day to day. So recovery is obviously enhanced but they're also putting out higher power outputs than we've seen not since the the old golden era of uh between 99 and 2005 where some shady things were going down but they're bringing the power back up to those sort of numbers now or what's per kilo at least beyond it what what's your thoughts there why, why are we seeing that now training training type and, and science and also application of other things in the training um process like more there's less race days 
there's more training days, there's more altitude, there's more tech behind it. Every watt's accounted for, like mm. literally, like chains are now scrutinized over. If you last year, Ineos did a, a, a thing about Ghana doing the world record, uh, the hour record, and they went through 260 chains or something to try and find the most efficient one. <laughs> it's absolute bedlam, and they cost so much money. So it's just training practice, science, like sports science and intervention of that. And also training from an earlier age, I think, more specifically. So when you're a kid back in, like, G's day, you just mess around on a bike and win some races. Yeah. But now they're training on Zwift and to structure. Yeah. It's really interesting. So you're getting a higher top-end threshold because you've been training it for longer. You're, you're someone who... Quite interesting, actually. You, you love data. You love to analyze things. However, in your own training, you won't mind me saying, you tend to freestyle quite a lot. You, you like to enjoy. It's all about enjoyment. Will I enjoy this? You know, did you have fun? That kind of side. Does it leave you with... Are you, as a cycling coach, uh, are you on board with that way of training? Or what's your thoughts around whether we're more data-driven now or more feeling-driven? It's a tri- that's a tricky one, like. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think there, there's got to be data behind the training process because you've got access to it now, it would be foolish not to use it. But being able to replicate an effort on feel alone and enjoy it is probably more important than looking at data and staring at a screen on a bike because that sort of deviates away from the point of it, right? And if you can't feel the power, then how can you reproduce it in a race? Yeah, because one of the, I think it was Paris-Roubaix, the guy who came third lost his Garmin about 60k in he rode the whole thing on feel perfect <laughs> that's easy though isn't it it's just hang on to the wheel <laughs> right but uh i think it it goes to show data in training excellent mm. data in racing you, you don't unless you're going to steady climb okay i mean old man dylan van ball won the one recently uh a cla- uh, classic oh no no not classic yeah, it was a classic. And his last hour of power was 390 watts normalized. It's absolutely insane. But I swear he was not looking at his power when he was pedaling alone for the last hour. You wouldn't want to be if those numbers were coming up, would you? Yeesh. Okay, classic season and a bit of training covered. The, the Grand Tours are the, the three biggest cycling races of the year in the cycling calendar. We've got the Giro d'Italia. We've got the Tour de France and we've got the Vuelta. So Italian race, French race and Spanish race. What makes them Grand Tours and what makes them what people do argue is being one of the hardest endurance feats you can do on a professional calendar? They're all three weeks long and there's no other races in the calendar that are that long. You get week-long tours, 10-day tours sometimes, but the three-weeker is the big daddy. Um, that's what makes them that answers the second question it's you only get two rest days within that three weeks so it's an absolute beast and it's the hardest because they're the, like 166 kilometers on average for the Giro this year like for example per stage yeah. and that includes a couple of time trials so it's just three weeks of absolutely smashing yourself going up some of the biggest climbs in the countries that they go to or the fastest flats in TT it's just mental. Like that's why it's the hardest because it's relentless day after day. Yeah, and the the Giro actually used to fly under the radar quite a lot. I would say not many would tune in for it. It's less populous for sure. Um, 
But I think I remember the year, I think it was around early 2013, 14, when um, only Italians stopped winning it, <laughs> which is a pretty mad stat, actually. From 97 to 2007, only Italians won the Giro. Um, and then Contador came in and said, hold my needle. Albert. Edit that out, but. Um, <laughs> <laughs> then, yeah, a few more Italians. Uh, won it after that but then 2014 was Nairo Quintana's year yeah. uh-huh. Uh-huh. and then it actually be- started becoming an interesting race that people wanted to watch would you agree? again I, I think the coverage was poor back then because mm. RC I think it's RCS Sports who control it um, weren't exactly the most savvy and the Tour de France dominated and there was limited TT time back then as well so you could only air like the last hour of a stage and People didn't want to because it wasn't like there's not enough channels to harness that well as or host that. Sorry. Yeah. So now you've got GCN, which is an app, which is casting every single race. So there's more access to it. Yeah. So it might have been the best race in the world. Yeah. Because it was, but we didn't see it. We didn't see it. It's like the women's racing now. You can see it all happening from yeah. like from the kilometer zero. So yeah, that alongside, um, obviously Quintana won it. Then Contador won it again. Uh, Neverly came in and won it in 2016. And then we had uh, Tommy Dumoulin from Netherlands, Chris Froome, Richard Carapaz, another South American, Theo Gegenhart, another Brit, Egan Bernal, another South American, and last year, Jai Hindley. So a real spread of, of countries there to make more people want to yeah. tune in. And then they start learning the history of the Giro and they realize, actually, it's one of the most, uh, out of all the three Grand Tours, some of the climbs they put in the Giro are just insane they're probably too hard that what they would put in the tour de france because they try and make the tour more interesting from a, a racing standpoint don't they whereas the giro they they put in some really hard stuff yeah, they, they they pride themselves on being like hardest climbs right they love to like that back back week that last week is an absolute brute every single time yeah it's like seven stage um summit finishes this year that's a week long of finishing on top of a hill. <laughs> Just imagine that. And the, uh, the highest uh, stage this year is the, what's it? I don't know how to pronounce it. Called the, called the Gran San Bernardo. Um, <laughs> Sounds perfect. And that's 2,469 meters up. And the climb itself is like 40K. And that's the Chimo Copi, which is like the, the, the climber's award. Right. So we're, if you like watching people climb hard on a bike, the Giro is is the tour for you. Mm. It's a lot more relaxed as well. There's a lot more free racing. So the, the tour is full of stress. This is what the professionals always say about it. If you like to listen to podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> they always say like the Giro is very, very relaxed. The cycling's a lot more, not friendly, right? Because they, they want to rip each other's legs off. But there's a lot more attacks. Brakes stay away for longer because it's less controlled by the peloton. There's less interested parties. There's, they don't always take the strongest squads. So you get a couple of free radicals dancing up the road and, mm. and just... It's a bit more romantic, right? It's Italy. <laughs> true, true. Um, what's, what stands out for you this year as being, you know, why, why would we watch the Giro this year? Or why will you be watching the Giro this year? Because <laughs> it's the best. Um, I think it's the showdown between Rog and Evenepoel and then see where G's at in terms of his, his, his renaissance continued. Mm. But I think the, the parkour is really good. The, the fact it's, what, it's 50, 1,400 meters of elevation in the whole three <laughs> weeks. And 
the the climbers typically in Italy in the Dolomites and uh, northern Italy are a lot more vicious than the tour. Right. Italian Alps are a lot more gentle, like five six percent. We go to there to Italy, and it's like seven eight percent on average. French Alps are more gentle. Yeah. Italian Alps are steeper. Yeah. Brutal. Yeah. And it's you get a lot more weather because it's early in the year, so you get snow, you get ice. The the snow lines there still, so you go up and over, say like Stelvio, and yeah. you go and and descending on, on basically ice paths. So it's it's three hundred uh, three thousand four hundred eighty nine kilometers this year, and as you said, fifty one thousand four hundred meters elevation. That basically ride Jebel Jace five hundred fourteen times oh, in three weeks. Yeah, it's not bad, eh? It's mad. It's not bad. It's mad. Um, you, as you said, it's a bit of a it's a good tour for watching breakthrough riders mm. coming through and, and having a go. Um, when you're, what are you looking for, say in the first week of the tour? So for people who, who maybe want to get into watching cycling a bit more, they might see, uh, especially in the Giro, in the early stages of races, the group's all staying together and everyone's waiting for a breakaway to happen. And as you say, in the Giro, they're allowed to go a little bit more. What, how do you judge a breakaway and whether it's going to be strong or not? And how can we actually get excited about that when we are watching cycling? What's actually happening? Why are they letting riders ride off up the road? Ah, oh, you have the logistics. Okay, so I was wondering where you go on that one. <laughs> so they want to let a break go because they want to relax in the peloton. That's the, that's the fundamentals of it. So you, you don't want to have a group together all the time. Okay. Otherwise, you'll just be attacking each other and it'll be really stressful. It's more likely to be crashes. So a group will want to go away. There'll be lesser teams who don't have the capability to win the stage who want to get time on TV. So they'll like go, oh, they'll go. They're not a GC contender. They're not, a gr- uh, they're not the overall winner. Mm. So they'll go, okay, you can, you can have a little bit of TV time. Yeah. And then teams will want to control the race. So they'll send a guy up the road as well just to make sure that they're not going to get away too far. So they'll play interference. Yeah. And that calms the peloton down. So if it's a 160k stage and they want to only ride for 30k because they've only got the manpower, then they'll send people up the road and it's fine. So they'll let the brake go up to like five minutes. Yeah. When it gets interesting is when the group behind starts to disagree about who's going to do the work to bring them back in. <laughs> and that's when it gets real fun because you can either have one team who burns all their matches, but nobody wants to do that because they want to win the stage. Mm. So then that's when it becomes the cohesion of the group at the front. If they work together really well, and there's a group of, say, 16 of really, like, mid-range riders mm. with a couple of, like, old goats in there who know how to ride or know how to win a stage. That's when it gets interesting. And then and then the last 10K, it's like 10 seconds for every kilometre. So if they have, like, a minute and a half, it gets really, like, edgy. You see, are they going to stay away? Are they going to get going? Are they going to actually win a stage? Yeah. And then they start looking at each other because they're like, all right, I might actually win this. I'm not going to do the work for you. And then they all start like, having a big fight. Yeah. And then one guy just goes bang. Yeah. And you've just got to follow him. Yeah. So, I mean, that is one amazing thing to watch is when you're, you're trying to watch them all figure out their place within the, within the breakaway group. Right. And if it tends to be, if you've got two teammates in there, one won't work. One of them works. One of them will um, hopefully go for the win. If there's all people in there, or if you, even if you've got a couple of teams in there, or you've got people, all different people from different teams, then you've got to be ready for fireworks. For war. Yeah. Especially when one person thinks he's stronger than the rest. So does the same amount of pulls until the, the correct time, and he thinks that's a good opportunity to go. And then you'll just start lighting up and pull really hard, or will attack the group, and that's when it goes to shreds. So you get two 
two races in between in in one race essentially you've got the gc race behind and you've got the the breakaway group ahead trying to get away and then you sometimes get a a bridging group that goes from the main peloton because they they think actually we've missed this we can actually do something here so they'll dive across and then once they get in it's like okay so we have to re reorder it again and then sometimes they'll attack off the back of that it's yeah. it's it's like a game of chess really yeah. hard game of chess <laughs> chess in the lactagon <laughs> <laughs> um good that's the Giro. That's why you should watch the Giro because the breakaways, they never have it easy either because as you said, the seven, well, how many of the finishers are, are mountaintop finishers? Seven. And w- if you crack on a on a finish that's on a steep incline, you don't just lose a couple of seconds. You minutes. start pedaling backwards, right? Yeah, and you've got a good you've got a good range of riders going to the Giro because they've set it up so there's there's not too a 70k of time trying which suits Evnepol and actually Rog. But there's a lot of climbing, so there's a lot of options to win, and there's a lot of opportunity too. So you've got like you've got the three, which I mentioned. So Evnopol, Roglic, and Thomas, Canny, mm. the hitters. They've been there, done it. And then you've got like Hugh Carthy. You've got Magnus Court, who's shown decent form. You've got Tua Pinot, who's his last year as a pro. <laughs> so he, he's going to start gurning <laughs> his way up a hill. And you've got um, from UAE, actually, you've got um, Jay Vine and Joao Almeida, who have also shown really good form. Jay, Jay Vine, he came from Zwift. Oh, won yeah. a Zwift competition. Now he got signed by UAE. Was it Woosh or something? And then mm. he just won the Tour Down Under. He's in cracking nick, and he puts out some amazing numbers. So there's, again, breakthrough riders. It's going to be absolutely class. Excellent. Good. Giro begins 6th of May. Very soon. Very soon. Yeah. We won't see you soon for three weeks. No. no. <laughs> we'll, let's jump to the Vuelta, and we're going to finish on the tour. The Vuelta, I've got to be honest, never really spent time watching it. It's because you're knackered by the end of it. <laughs> it's like it's like it's like grand tour fatigue, and that is so true. Because if you are a cyclist fan, you have to watch nine weeks straight of cycling, uh, basically, and listen to the two podcasts that review after. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's time consuming. It is the the Vuelta is known not to be as exciting in some areas as the Giro or the Tour. However, the Vel- the Vuelta or that area, or Spain itself, has some really short, punchy climbs in. They're not the long ones that people, um, that you find in the Alps, but they are real punchy ones. So they're, it's a, it's, an, it's probably a quicker, it's definitely a shorter Grand Tour than the others, still over 3,000 Ks, but it tends to be a bit faster and, and more for the, the sprinting guys, would you say? Um, it, they're, they're changing tactic again, aren't they, the Vuelta? So they're trying to do what the Giro did. Uh. Both are trying to compete. So the Vuelta used to be really boring because it had loads of transitional stages, like 200k of just flat, flat boring yeah. road. So you just switch off and go to sleep. But <laughs> <laughs> now they've gone to short stages and a lot punchier finishes. So they've got these big walls in Spain that are just like pavement roads mm. that are like 20% and they just stick them in every week and just say, <laughs> go on, have a go. And that's why like Chavez does really well there because he's so light. But yeah, it's it's... It's typically the less watched, and it's it also gets people don't target the Vuelta so much. Yeah, they use it as a oh, I didn't do well at the Tour or I didn't do well at the Giro. Yeah, let's let's just stick them in the Vuelta. Yeah, and it, it was another one that used to be predominantly won by Spanish riders. Yeah, um, it was, and then but then in the last few years, it's it's gone. If we look back, uh, Chris Froome won it in two thousand eleven. 
Which was not default because old mate got pinged. Yeah, it was. He was declared the legitimate winner because yeah. of uh, mate's testing. Uh, then Contador won it again the following year, who is Spanish, and he won it again two years later. But it, it's another one where the tour has grown, likely from other nationalities winning it. We had two Brits in there, or, or two Brits as in Froome and Yates winning it, Froome winning it twice. Um, but then the last last year was a, was a Belgian, was a Remco, but before that was three years in a row, Primoz Roglic, Slovenian. He loves it though, because he always, <laughs> he always messes up the two and has to go to the world to save That's the That's exactly what I was going to say, is he, he uses it as a season finisher, seems to be that way, when he gets the tour wrong. It's like the, um, it's just a second bite, isn't it? Second bite of the cherry to make yeah. sure it's not a failed season. Poor <laughs> lad. Um, but again, it's another tour that is really growing, um, yeah. thanks to the, the different nationalities going in and, and racing it. It's also, we're going to come on to the, the big one, the Tour de France, but the Giro and the uh, Vuelta, is, it's not less competitive in terms of the standard of rider, but it's less competitive in terms of standard of team. Mm. So if you go there with a strong team, you've already put yourself in a really good chance of, of winning it. But you do tend to see more riders um, who kind of attach themselves on to more of a lead group rather than having a team pull them through the whole stage and the, all the team doing well. When you're, when we, we're going to talk about the, the, the Tour de France soon, but how do they get through, how many cyclists in a, in a cycling team? In the Tour? No, in, uh, in total. Like, do they have a different squad for each yeah. Grand Tour and the, and the Classics? Um, merging now. Okay. So they, they merge, but they have, they'll have a Giro team. So like Ineos have a Giro team that have been trained together all the way up to it. And then they'll have a Tour de France team. They'll have that pre-arranged and then they'll have to sub in and out depending on the fitness level. So if they don't hit, hit the benchmarks, they're out. Yeah. Um, but they'll have like a, a, like, a, like a little penciled in, like this is your team, this is your team. And we're not, we're not quite there yet as we are in, in, let's say, football or rugby where they actually name positions. But within that team, there's a few different roles that people are playing. What are those roles? What are you, who do you enjoy watching and which roles in which teams? Oh, you've got so many roles these days. You've got the main guy on the road who's the road captain. Like, so for Ineos, for example, that's Luke Rowe. And he, he calls the shots on the road and he dictates where the team is at what one point. And they've been briefed by that at the, from the DS, the director sportive at the start of the day. So where's the pinch points? Where's the corners? X, Y, and Z. Like, where do we need to be at what point? And then Luke Rowe has to organise that. And if a break goes that he's not happy with, you'll send a guy up the road to go. So from there, you've got like domestiques. Domestiques are workers, are like worker bees. And they do all the grunt work. They take the wind, they get water bottles, they make sure that the GC rider it, or the person who is the priority rider for that stage is looked after to the best ability. The idea is to make sure that person doesn't have to pedal at all and is safe as possible. So that's, that's their job. Then you get the supers, the super domestiques. They're the person who is with 10k to go or 2k to go is there and is protecting them until they can literally not turn the pedals anymore. Richie Port was the best super. He was incredible. He was there until like 1k to go where he just bury himself to make sure that the, like Chris Froome in that circumstance is, doesn't have to do a thing until he has to. So they're, they're the ultimate looker afters, like the ultimate nannies. And how do they decide who's gonna win? Who's the strongest? But you just said the strongest is actually pulling the the leader to within one k of the finish line. Why does the leader get to win? 
because he's got the strongest trained data and he's got the biggest <laughs> kick. So over three three weeks, they decide that he's got the best engine, like from all the data they collect to be able to win. Okay, and he's shown it as well, right? Yeah. If he's shown he can win, then they back him more. Okay, and then uh, the people have probably heard of sprinters or sprint stages, where. The, are, the, are the sprinters also the, the strongest or they, do they have a completely different role? They're the strongest for that stage. So you have less so these days. Eh? You used to have pure sprint trains like HTC with CAV. They had a whole team dedicated to pulling. Any team with CAV is <laughs> He's got a Giro apparently. Is he? Yeah, he's got a star of pulling. Poor lad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's less, less common these days because a lot of people are seeing more benefits for their GC but they used to have like a big a sprint train. But these days it's, yeah, if the sprint is the fastest, who's got the biggest like five second power has been shown to be able to be not only physically, but also mentally like a nutter. And he gets, he gets led out to 250 meters to go and delivered. Yeah. Um, Mikhail Mokov or Milkov <laughs> for um, quick step, whatever they call these days. Yeah. Um, Lotto, he is the best for that. He's an absolute engine. If you want to see somebody ride a bike well, you go and watch him in a, in the last 1k of a race it's it's incredible but we never see the sprinters winning the grand tours no too big huh too big so to the biggest tour de france because i think most people probably when they're watching the giro or the vuelta they they're not too bothered about the sprinters and the they they're more worried about who's winning overall but the tour de france you well, if you're a fan of cycling, you actually care about everything. You care about the points jersey, you care about the sprinters jersey, you care about the yellow jersey, sometimes even the white jersey, which is the young rider jersey. But you don't really think of that in the other Grand Tours. But that shows why the Tour de France is the most special. Everything's a battle, right? Everything, everything <laughs> is a battle to everything. win. Everything. And there's a team competition as well. You yeah. Get, you get a yellow hat. So why, why does the Tour stand at the top of the Grand Tours? Because it was the first to get marketed really, really well. <laughs> <laughs> you love marketing. So tell us more about that. It just it was the first. The, the, the whole Malogion was because the, the newspaper was yellow. So they gave the yellow top. And it was publicized in national French newspapers. And it got all the best riders. And it has like, like Mercs. Everybody has ridden it and won it. And they're the, the legend icons. And then because it's the, the race to win from such an early point, like we're going way back, like when 1903. 1903, when they were smoking cigarettes and drinking whiskey on the bike. <laughs> like it's it's just been around for so long, and it's been pushed out there as the hardest and the best and the most prestigious win. It's bigger than the world champs in some places. Yeah, it's worth going back to that era because we see the tour now as this incredible convoy of cars, and each team has. 17 members of staff you know each one of your legs gets its own monsieur you got bottles coming out of everywhere i mean they are just looked after from start to finish to recovery to chefs you name it back in 1903 it was here's your here's your here's your map um you've got you used to have the back wheel had uh, one sprocket on one side for climbing and the other side you'd have it for the flats so you'd stop you'd change your wheel depending on whether you're going up a hill down or on a flat and then they had zero idea around fueling a Grand Tour like this. So as you said, they used to, they used to actually drink on the Grand Tours. And, and it wouldn't be uncommon that people would actually die on these um, incredible bike races. 
Yeah, so it also got the, the feet of the hardest one because they try to make it the hardest. So they, they, they weren't the professionals like they are today. They were pretty much working class and they tried to make it as hard as possible by their team would make would stick them in the most ridiculous races and the distances within the two if you look at some of the stage lengths are absolutely ballistic they'd have like two hours kip and go again <laughs> it's mental and they're sitting on these big steel bikes that weigh about 60 kilos and they're riding up the like the colombians things it's it that's where it got that, that instilled of the hardest race because it was just Honestly, the, the stats from that is just ridiculous what they did. Yeah. And they didn't get, they didn't have team cars a lot of the time. So what they'd have to do is they'd have to jump off the bike in little villages and run into stores and steal like beer and like food and run out and then get back on the bike and pedal off. Yeah. So it's just, I'd love to have seen it at that time. If, so if you want to read a good book around that, uh, I recommend Tom Simpson, Put Me Back on My Bike. Oh, that's a great one. But he, he was what, 1960s, eh? <coughs> Yeah, loved amphetamines. Yeah, as well. big big drug scene. Big drug scene. Then, they they thought that would help them, but actually made them stitch them up. Like Mix is class for it. His eyes and some of the pictures are hot. Yeah, and it, it was an era there where they were experimenting with a few different substances. Let's say that um, obviously now the the sports developed into being pretty strictly controlled. However, we could we could argue a few a few uh, what do they call them TUIs there. Uh, <laughs> but it, Sean Kelly style. it was around that time that we saw the the grand tours being developed into something that became so prestigious to win not just tour de france but also to win the giro and the vuelta um the first guy being a frenchman jacques anquetil, anquetil. um who won uh, won <laughs> won the tour uh eight times i think and five of those were in a row and at the same time he was winning the giro and and the Vuelta. Um, and then Eddie Merckx, as you said, came along and did it. There was another guy also doing it, uh, an Italian guy. Not actually heard of him, Gimondi. But Eddie Merckx really came on the scene and he was the first guy winning classics plus, I think, five tours in a row. Yeah, something stupid like that. <laughs> That's going to get fact-checked. So this is all building the, well, I think they call them Palmares, yep. within, within cycling. This was building the hype of of the tour and the tour de France. I can remember, I mean, if I think of my earliest cycling memory, it was around the tour, watching yeah. it on Transworld Sport back in the day. Oh, you remember that one? I do actually. Um, and now it's grown to where it is these days, which is, well, it's definitely the most tuned in cycling event in the year, right? I'd say so, yeah. yeah. But uh, so we're, we've talked about why, because everything is a contest. So how do you predict a Grand Tour? It's very regimented. So you know there are thereabouts because it's such a professional like, race these days that the sprint's going to come to a sprint. The hills is going to be separated with three of the top riders and it's who goes. So you need to look at the previous days and you need to look at the previous weeks and then make your predictions off that. So it's quite, it's, I mean, it's really highly stressful. So mm. every single stage is like an absolute stress fest like the start to get into the break is absolute carnage because everybody wants to be there just imagine getting 160 blokes who are absolutely <laughs> primed physically yeah. at the start line and just going go on then yeah. have a go yeah it's just mental yeah so the, i think you've touched on a great point there you can look at the tour schedule and if you enjoy sprint stages 
or you enjoy watching sprints, you can say, oh, there's a sprint stage. I'm definitely going to watch that one. If you enjoy watching mountaintop finishes or climbs and battles within on the hills, you can actually pick out and you go, I'm going to watch that one there. If you enjoy watching transfer stages, then look for the long, boring one. Not many people do that. So wh- let's look at this year's then. Which which stages are we going to definitely be watching on the Tour de France? Um, all of them. <laughs> Who's not fanatic like you? <laughs> uh, they go up the Colombier, which I'd really like to see. And um, they go up the Mont Blanc. They do some climb at Mont Blanc, which looks like an absolute banger. Uh, there's the back end of that week, the third week, I think that is as well. So the b- third week's clearly the best. But then there's the, what I'm particularly interested in um, is the final TT. I was looking at the profile of it today. And it's it's flat, and then it just goes up. It's a wall. It's twelve point three percent for seven point three kilometers. Now put yourself in these lads' shoes. <laughs> just, just cycled for two and a half weeks, taking punches at each other, and then they've got to ride solo and go up a hill that's seven point three k long. It it twelve point three percent full gas to make sure that they win the Tour de France. It's going to be fascinating. Like that is for me. That's going to be the pinnacle because if it stays close, which I think it will, I don't think it'll be huge gaps no matter how strong Pog is or Vinny is, like it's not going to be a massive spread because it's just too, the, the, the stages are too hard. So that could be the deciding day. It's like a couple of years back when, was it Pog overturned Rog? Mm, on but, the last TT. Yeah, that was amazing as well. That was the plunge de Belfi climb, wasn't it? Yes. But yeah, that was that was pretty decent. Then there's Pau, that stage, I think it's five. That's pretty decent as well. Um but yeah, just have a little look. It depends what you want. I'm going to watch all the hill stages. <laughs> of course you are. Because that's <laughs> that's what I like to see, people hitting hitting out on a hill. But yeah, that that um, the Mont Blanc one, I think at stage 17, that's going to be an absolute cracker. The stage profile is nice. Yeah. And then are you, when you're watching them, are you also looking at, uh, for example, you know which climbs, you may have done a couple of climbs that these guys are actually going to ride on as well. Do you think that's also quite an, uh, an exciting reason to watch it? Because you, you can actually go and cycle what these guys are riding on. Yeah, that's it. Uh, that's exactly it. It's more so the Giro because I've spent more time, actually, and the Volta because I've spent more time in um, Spain, Spain, Spain. <laughs> Spain and, uh, and Italy. So that's really exciting. You can see the road and you can see the writing on it. And you, if you've been there and you've done it, you go, oh, I've been there. And then you go in your splits and Strava and you go, oh, no, maybe not this time. <laughs> Train harder for next year. But it's really cool. And the the fanfare from the Tour of France is ridiculous. The caravan apparently is longer than the actual uh, peloton itself. Yeah it's, yeah. it's mental. And then if you want to go visit it, you can go on like tours. So you go ahead of the tour for like three weeks and do the whole thing. Or you can do like just little portions of it. You can ride the stage and watch them come up it, which should be next level. They tap the tour, I think that's called, isn't it? And no. Uh, no? The tap is just one stage where it is actually a stage. Ah. But there's actual tours you can go on, which like oh. a, you pay some you pay some money and you go for a ride. <laughs> Bit different to Al Kudra. <laughs> Excellent, mate. I think you've well, yeah, broken down that down pretty well. If uh, you got to give predictions, get people to watch it so they can see whether you can actually predict pro cycling or not. Give us them Giro, Tour, and Vuelta. Uh, all right, Giro. It's easy. It's Evanapol, hundred percent. Okay, Tua. It's Pog because <laughs> he's just on absolute fire. And if he goes at altitude, he's gonna rip people's legs off. Because you live in the UAE. Mm. 
hire me. And then I don't actually know for the world. It depends who turns up. <laughs> Roglic. Oh, yeah, because he's buggered up the, the do, Giro. Do, do you think who will win the Velta is someone who has gone for the Giro or the Tour and messed up? Um, I actually, yeah, I do. <laughs> I honestly think so. I think there's... I was looking through the Vuelta startup list and it's not... There's no, no, no real confirmations of it. But something like um, Mikel Lander, if he does bad or crashes out of the Tour, he could go to the Vuelta and do very well. He's been on class form. So he's he's a dark horse and he's coming to the end of his days. I was say, it's got to be the end of his days soon. He's got like a year, two years left. Wow. Or if, um, say, if old mate, uh, or Ineos rider, crashes all the time, hit his neck. What's his name? Egan. Egan. Yeah. If he comes, if he trains well through the summer, he'll be he'll be good shout for the Vuelta. And if he races it, I don't think he's doing the tour. Here you go. Get down the bookies. Tell him Rob Foster sent you. <laughs> Don't tell them that. They'll never give you anything. They'll give you really long odds. Excellent, mate. Thank you very much for going on and explaining that. And uh, yeah, if you want to ride the the Grand Tour with you every Saturday on Al Kudra. Yeah, the two at the Kudra. Five forty-four. <laughs> timing. There's, mate, a, there's some good stages. Um, my advice would be to get a group of mates together and pick out some ones you want to watch and yeah. spend like a couple hours watching it because it's it's good in the community, especially if you don't know a lot about cycling and you want to get into it. Um, get somebody who knows more and get them to commentate in an Irish accent. <laughs> and they're pretty clever, aren't they, the organisers? They normally put the punchy races on the weekends yeah. or the stages on the weekends and things like that. Excellent. While I've got you on, I need to ask you about your mate, Elowid who just uh, came ninth in Boston. It is about running, but I need to ask you because you're on. Thoughts? Just had a bad day. Sometimes sometimes you don't have the legs, right? And I think there's a lot of pressure. There's so much pressure. I watched a couple of um, videos on why he didn't win it, and there's that water bottle malarkey. But he's taken like 110 grams of carbs an hour. So it might be. But still, he just didn't have the legs, poor lad. <laughs> there we go expertly put um great thank you <laughs> we'll uh we'll get you on after the tour season is finished and we'll see how your predictions are this is summary <laughs> all right guys thank you very much for listening if you want to get in touch with this skinny guy to talk about your cycling predictions he'd love to hear you can give him a, a dm on his instagram uh, rf underscore foster tom hagger don't don't, <laughs> me, don't message me it's a shout out <laughs> all right guys thank you for listening We'll be back next week.